They said Jesus was only a man where the scripture says he is the God-man. And you must change your mind over that. So Peter is calling them to repent. But understand that conviction by the Spirit of God doesn't necessarily always produce conversion. There are people in Scripture who are convicted by the Spirit of God, but they don't repent. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Scoffing at Christ's Return. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Clearly, Peter is commanding us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pastor Carl reminds us that one of the ways we will not be knocked off kilter by the mockery and scoffing in our day is for us to continue to grow in the Word of God. Please join us in 2 Peter chapter 3 as we continue. God says He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance. We just read in 2 Peter 2.1 of these apostates who, quote, deny the master who bought them. When Jesus died, he died not just for the elect. He died for the whole world. They say, well, his blood was wasted then. It wasn't wasted because the same blood that saves you will condemn the unbeliever. The unbeliever will have absolutely no way of saying, oh, I didn't have a chance. Jesus didn't even die for me. No, he died for all so that all can believe, but not all choose to believe. He desires for all to be saved and for none to come to repentance. And so the hyper-Calvinists would say, some babies that die, they die and go to hell. That's a poison. That's a distortion of the very character and nature of God himself. And so sometimes when you hear that, you need to guard your heart with all diligence because it's not all prearranged and we'll see before we're done here. We have a responsibility to share this good news with a lost world. Now notice he wishes none to perish but all to come to repentance. So obviously repentance has something to do with salvation. So let's talk about that for just a moment. What does the word repent mean? Some say, well, it just means to feel sorry. Well, not necessarily. It's not so much a feelings word as it is an action word. The verb metanao means to change your mind. And even the adjective and the noun, it just carries the idea of a mind change. God is asking you to change your mind. Now, feelings may be involved, and so Paul speaks of a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But the repentance is not the feeling. The repentance is the action behind the feeling. It's an action word. And of course, some people say, well, you have to feel really sorry for repentance to be real. Listen, God wired us all different, and it's used in different contexts. Remember when Peter stands up and he preaches his very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, and they're brought under deep, deep, deep conviction. And they say, brethren, what must we do? And he'll, he will say, repent. So repentance, make sure you understand it's just a change of mind. It results in a change of action. 
but it's a change of mind. Don't make repentance a work where you front load the gospel, where you clean up your act so you can come to Jesus. You can't clean up your act. The one who sins is a slave to sin. Now, it will produce a changed life, and so John the Baptist can speak of producing fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, 8. Or Paul can say in the book of Acts, I preach that they should repent and turn to God, improve their repentance by their deeds. And when those Jewish people are brought under deep conviction, as he shows them verse by verse through an expository sermon that Jesus is Lord, that they killed the Messiah. Brethren, what should we do in one word? Repent. Change your mind. What is he asking them to repent about? They said Jesus was only a man where the scripture says he is the God-man. And you must change your mind over that. So Peter is calling them to repent. But understand that conviction by the Spirit of God doesn't necessarily always produce conversion. There are people in Scripture who are convicted by the Spirit of God, but they don't repent. Stephen stands up there and he says, you're always, you stiff-hearted men, resisting the Spirit of God who was convicting them. Remember Paul when he had Governor Felix in front of him? He gave an incredible, compelling sermon concerning the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible says in Acts 24, 25, and as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Paul, by the way, preached on hell. Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present time, and when I find time, I'll summon you. But he never summons Paul again. He was brought under conviction, but he didn't repent. So you can have conviction without repentance. In fact, you can have confession without repentance. We've been studying the Pharaoh, among other things, as we've been examining Moses' life. Do you remember Pharaoh? Plague after plague after plague, the plague of blood, frogs, insects, cattle, and, and boils. And finally, he says in Exodus 9, I have sinned this time. The Lord Yahweh is the righteous one. I and my people are the wicked ones. That was confession. But it was confession without repentance. A few verses later, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart. You can have conviction without repentance. You can have confession without repentance. In fact, you can have crying without repentance. Don't be fooled by the crocodile tears. Somebody said, oh, they really got saved. They were crying all over the place. Not always true. Think about Esau. He had a lust for food that superseded his lust for the things of God. And when he finally realizes what he has done, he wants to repent with tears. And so the writer of the Hebrews uses him as, as an illustration that there is to be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Crying in tears don't always mean genuine repentance. A lot of people feel sorry on Sunday morning for what they did on Saturday night. But they have no intention of changing anything. Feeling sorry doesn't mean you've repented. The rich young ruler, Jesus said, felt great sorrow. Understand, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but to come to repentance. So maybe to help us to think about what repentance is, let's think about the flip side of repentance. 
Again, on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish people asked, brethren, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer asked the same question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe. He tells them to change your mind in Acts 2, Peter, about Jesus. And Paul just says, believe. He never mentions repentance. Why does not Peter simply say believe? And why does Peter, Paul not say repent? Because when you repent, you believe. When you truly believe, you have indeed repented. That's why John's gospel, the only gospel, in fact, the only book in the New Testament who tells us that one of its express purposes is for conversion. These things I've written that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah and believing you might have life in his name. And not once does the word repent appear. Wait a minute, Lord Jesus. You commanded the apostles that they are to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He did. By virtue of the way he presented the gospel, the way he asked people to believe, he was genuinely asking them to repent. Now listen, when you believe in Christ, you've repented, and when you've repented, you've changed your mind, then you've believed. That's what is involved. You cannot see sin as something that is to be cherished and be converted. You don't need a Savior until you see sin for what it is. So all across America in our evangelical churches, people are shacking up with each other, living under the same address. because most of the time they really haven't believed. You can't cherish sin and hold on to it. You have to change your mind about sin. You have to change your mind about self. There's a lot of self-righteous people who will never see the inside of the kingdom. Why? Because they think it's a works righteousness. Or they wouldn't deny that Jesus died, but that's not enough as the Jesus plus plan. But unless you come as bankrupt and helpless. You will never see the inside of God's kingdom. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. Remember, he is asking people to consider the truth that God is not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That God is involved in time and space. He showed it through the creation. He showed it through the flood. And the only reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he's holding the door of mercy open just a little bit longer. For that matter, you can have compunction without repentance. Judas is a classic example. He regretted that he betrayed Jesus. But he hung himself and he died and he went to hell. He went to hell, of course, not because he hung himself, not because he committed suicide. He just went to hell sooner than he would have went to hell. He went to hell because he was an unbeliever, but he had deep regrets. You can have conviction without repentance, crying without repentance, uh, confession without repentance, compunction without repentance, but you cannot have conversion without repentance. You must change your mind about sin, your self-sufficiency, and the Savior. And he just wants us to understand that don't be knocked off kilter by these mockers. God is just holding the door open to give people another day. Now, how are we going to apply this passage? Let me suggest four applications as we close our time. Number one, let me underscore this morning, we are not to set dates. 
We're not to set dates for Christ's return. When you set dates, you are giving mockers an opportunity to make fun. We just read in verse 5 that by the word of God, the creation came into existence. Then we just read and studied verse 7, but that by the word of God, the world will come to an end. Not by the word of man, but by the word of God. Harold Camping, a few years ago, set a time frame when Jesus would come back. Yeah, nobody knows the day or the hour, but we know the year. So the first time around, he gave the year, and then he gave a date. 1994, 2011, mud all over his face. People sacrificed deeply, sold their homes, made all kinds of foolish decisions. One of our own members, his brother, went bankrupt over the whole shmeal. And to his credit, just before he died, three months before he died, he said, I was wrong that I sinned. So I will say that on his behalf. I have a book back there in my library, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. That man became a millionaire. And I can still see Peter Jennings on September the 28th, uh, 1988, snickering and making fun. It didn't happen. Of course, 89 reasons. I mean, this guy had a lot of brass. Why Jesus will come in 1989, he didn't sell too many copies. And then we had some people who left this church in 2015. Because I wasn't in favor of this four blood moon theology. And all the wacko truth that they were unfolding to sell books. All this wackiness concerning the return of Jesus. Listen, the date is determined by his word, not by man's word. But of that day, Jesus told his disciples, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The precise moment can't be calculated by anyone. The angels don't know. Satan doesn't even know. He's an angel, a fallen angel. He doesn't even know. And when Jesus spoke these words, he said only the Father knew. When Jesus emptied himself, he took the form of a bondservant. He never lost any of his divine attributes, but he laid aside the exercise of those divine attributes to live in dependence upon the Spirit. He was still omniscient. He was still omnipresent. He was still omnipotent and immutable. But he depended upon the Spirit to exercise those attributes. So he could say, I know everything about Nathaniel. I know everything about the woman at the well. And he typically, in dependence on the Spirit, whether he opened up blind eyes or healed paralyzed limbs or unstopped deaf ears, he always did it in dependence upon the Spirit when he was authenticating that he was the Messiah. But when there was no need to authenticate that he was the Messiah... He could say, at least in his non-resurrected body, he didn't know the day or the hour. And so people say, but I do. In fact, he reminded us on the Mount of Olives that his ascension, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has chosen by his own authority. And so when someone sets dates, they're fueling the fire for mocking. 
Since nobody knows the time, don't waste your time trying to guess the time. Just be ready all the time because he can come back at any time. Secondly, we are to seek to be different. We are to seek to be different. We're not to set dates. We are to seek to be different. After giving us these warnings and instructions, notice how Peter applies the truth starting in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct in godliness? See that word sort? I think the King James, if I remember, said manner. It's a Greek word that means something that is foreign. He's already said in 1 Peter 2 that we're strangers and aliens to this world. We're foreigners, so to speak. And so he's just underscoring that our manner of life, our sort of life, is to be different from the people of this world. Now, I'm not saying that he is teaching we should be weird. There are some Christians who are weird, and sometimes they confuse weirdness with holiness. Weirdness is not holiness. But we are called to be holy. In fact, he not only uses this word hagios, holy, to speak of our relationship vertically, but then he uses this second word, godliness, that describes our relationship horizontally. In other words, we need to be clean in our walk with the Lord vertically, and we need to be walking in righteousness with our brother. If we're at odds with our brother, we can't expect God to use us. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Sin has marred and ruined the creation that we're in. But someday paradise lost will be paradise regained. God will create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth and there'll be no sin ever again to mess it up. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. There's not many things you can take with you to heaven. If you're married and you have children, hopefully you'll take your children and grandchildren because they've received Jesus as Lord. But you'll take your character there to the judgment of the just, which we will study in the weeks ahead. Third, we are to seek to win people to Jesus. Not only should we seek to be different, we are to seek to win people to Jesus. Verse 15 says, And regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Peter's restating what he just said back in verse 9. The only reason that's keeping Christ from coming back is the patience of the Lord. He's patiently waiting for more people to get saved. And what appears to be a negative inaction on the behalf of the thinking of the mockers is actually a positive demonstration of God's love. Macrothumia. Macro means large. Thumia means heat. We get our word thermos from it. And so literally, he's speaking here of a large anger when he renders this word patience. The King James says long-suffering. But one of these days, the long-suffering of God's patience will break to his wrath. In fact, listen to what James said about Peter's sermon. Acts 15, let me just read a couple of verses. Simeon, Peter has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after these things, I will return. 
I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. So the prophets agree. After these things, after what things? After the saving of the very last Gentile takes place. You see, this is a Gentile church. Now, God has always had a remnant, and there's always been a remnant of Jewish believers. But one of these days, the, Gentile who's, the Gentiles who have been leading the cause are going to be replaced by the Jews. And when the last Gentile is saved, after these things, the program for the second coming will begin to unfold, the rapture leading to the second coming. And I would just say, if you're not a Christian, one of these days, time will run out. You say, I don't think it will happen today. It may run out for you today. You could die before this day is over. One of our dear, precious deacons went home to heaven last night. He woke up. Everything was fine. He wasn't planning to go to heaven at the end of the day. Some of you, everything's fine. I've got plenty of time. You're going to meet God either by death or when the rapture takes place, as we'll see. It will be too late for you then. So the scripture says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless they have a preacher? He's not talking about me. He's talking about us. He's using the word generically in Romans 10. That we're all preachers. The question, are we faithful preachers or unfaithful preachers? Suppose you're to pass a house here in town and you see the roof's on fire. Man, the house is on fire. You call 911 and you go and you start banging on the doors and everything's locked. You look through the window and you see this lady and she's in the room with the baby and the baby's in a crib and she's gathering all her pearls and her treasures and putting them all in a suitcase and, and she seemingly is ignoring the baby and the house is beginning to fill up with flames and smoke and you say, what's wrong with that woman? She's sick. She has a warped value system. She's like a lot of Christians. We have a warped value system. We're living for the here and now. And we can't remember the last time we tried to bridge a conversation with someone concerning the forgiveness that can be found only through Jesus. Finally, we are never to stop growing. We are never to stop growing. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul by the way, Paul severely rebuked Peter at one time, but Peter was a big man. He didn't let that stop him. He received the rebuke, and they went on as best friends. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. Paul spoke a lot about the return of Jesus and how we should live, and which are some things hard to understand. I would agree with that. <laughs> which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. I've studied a lot of different kinds of manuals and even used to read some of my dad's medical books. But you know, most of the time you can kind of figure them out. The Bible is the most challenging book I've ever studied in my life. 
Now, it doesn't say it's impossible to understand. It just says it's difficult to understand. But he wants to underscore that the willfully ignorant distort it to their own destruction. So, you therefore, verse 17, beloved, know this beforehand. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Peter is saying, don't say I didn't warn you. The mockers are coming, and they're growing, and their hatred is intensifying. Peter knows you can't lose your salvation. He's already underscored the eternal security of the believer in this epistle. But he does know you can lose your steadfastness. And so he commands us in verse 18, grow, that's a command, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we're saved by grace, but we are to grow in grace. And one of the ways that you will be knocked, not knocked off kilter by the mockery and the scoffing of believers in the last day is for you to be growing. And that's why a pastor is to open the word. But if I open the word and 30 minutes later you can't even remember the sermon and you don't care to, you've got a problem. You're either lost or you're out of fellowship with the living God. But when you obey what you know, you will grow and you will be strong and you will have the spiritual steel to be able to help not only yourself, but others around you, especially your own children and your grandchildren. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to open your word, which is alive. We don't know when you're coming, but you certainly have said much about the time frame. We know we are at the end of time. You've told us to live with one eye on eternity while our feet are on the ground where we are attending to the business that you have called us to. We are thankful that someday a new world will be created in which righteousness dwells, but you have warned and said it over and over and over again to be a part of the new world. To enjoy heaven, you have to have a new birth. So help someone today to call upon Jesus to own their sin as wrong that needs to be forgiven and changed, to see themselves as bankrupt and to see Jesus as Lord. Help someone in childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, help us especially to prepare our children and our grandchildren because they will experience lonely days on their university campuses as they are opposed and mocked and made fun of, even in their places of work. Help us to prepare them for these days as we prepare our own hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, one of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy of Are the Unevangelized Really Lost with a donation of any amount to search the scriptures. Please give us a call at 877 787 
7478 or visit searchthescriptures.org to receive your copy today. If you missed any of our previous messages and would like to order your own copy, give us a call and request program God's Prophetic Schedule 007. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.